With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Shane from the Red Dwarf Intercast, and you're listening to Ekfar's Truth. The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. You say disappearance as if you expect to see him alive what do you think happened to him? You don't want to know what I think. Yes, we would like to know. We'd be very interested in what you think. I think whatever happened to Craig Horning will continue to happen. Until the bones are returned to the rightful place. Cat ate a rat. Dog ate the cat. More rats, Scully. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is Teso Dos Bichos. X-File number classified. The plot. At an archaeological dig in the Ecuadorian highlands, two archaeologists, Dr. Bilak and Dr. Roosevelt, get into an argument over the removal of a burial urn that contains an Amaru, or a female shaman. Roosevelt argues that the urn must be taken from the site and preserved in a museum, much to the chagrin of Bilak and the tribe's people. Later, a native shaman distributes Yahe to the local villagers and Bilak. During this ritual, a jaguar spirit kills Roosevelt in his tent. Later in Boston, Mulder and Scully investigate the disappearance of Dr. Decker, an archaeologist from a local history museum after a security guard discovers a large amount of blood in Decker's lab. They interview both the curator, Dr. Luton, and graduate student Mona Westner. They also visit a reclusive Bilak. I spent the last six months living with the Sakona, learning from them, coming to understand the nature and the depth of their culture. Well, apparently they've learned something from you, too. Yes, I've been teaching them the joys of American bureaucracy. Dr. Luton believes that the protest over the Amaru urn has something to do with Craig Horning's disappearance. You say disappearance as if you expect to see him alive again. What do you think happened to him? You don't want to know what I think. Yes, we would like to know. We'd be very interested in what you think. I think whatever happened to Craig Horning will continue to happen until the bones are returned to their rightful place. After closing, Luton is killed by the Jaguar spirit after his car doesn't start. During an investigation of the crime scene, Scully comes across rat corpses in the engine compartment of Luton's vehicle. Mona denies that anything unusual has happened in the museum. Mulder and a group of police search for Luton's remains. Scully sees blood dripping on Mulder's face from above and 
they see a portion of Luton's intestines hanging from a tree. Scully, about to perform an autopsy on the intestine, is interrupted when Mona suddenly calls and reports that Belak was under the influence of Yahe. Scully! Slow down, Mona. I was with Dr. Belak. He frightened me. I, I thought he was going to hurt me. What happened, Mona? He's sick. He doesn't know what he's doing. Where is he now? At his house. I, I left him there and I came back to the museum, but I feel like someone's here. Someone's watching me. I want you to stay exactly where you are. I'm going to send Agent Mulder over to get you right away, okay? He's on his way. At the museum, Mona hears noises from a restroom, and upon opening a toilet lid, she sees rats forcing their way out of the sewer. When the two agents arrive, they discover Belak crying beside one of the toilets, saying that Mona is dead. Later, Belak escapes from the room in which he's being held without exiting through the only door. Agent Scully? Belak's gone. What? How's that possible? I don't know. I went to check on him and he just wasn't there. Did you step away from this door at any time? No. And no one entered this room? Absolutely not. What about a rat? Sir? You ever see any rats in this room? All the time. Why? How do you think they get in here? Through the old heating system. There are vents all over the place. Hey, Scully, take a look at this. What does that lead to? The old steam tunnels. How'd he get down there? They're pretty much sealed up. Haven't been used for 50 years. You think Belak crawled down there? Unless he was dragged. Mulder notices a large drag mark through the dust on the floor, discovering a hatch leading to the museum's old steam tunnels. While exploring the tunnels, the agents find the remains of the victims and are attacked by a multitude of feral cats. As they try to escape, they come across Belak's mutilated body. The two agents make their way out and close the hatch on the pursuing cats. Mulder suspects that the animal attacks were associated with the burial urn that had been removed against the wishes of the Ecuadorian tribespeople. It shortly returned to the burial grounds, where the local shaman watches the urn's reburial with jaguar-like eyes. The Suffolk County coroner ruled the deaths at the museum were the result of animal attacks. What motivated these attacks and why no more have occurred since has not been explained. To the museum, the Amaru urn was an artifact from a dying culture. Its curse merely a primitive superstition. Dr. Belak learned there is a world beyond our own, unseen but powerful, and as real as the urn itself. The icons from that world represent forces that cannot be tamed or collected in a museum. The true curse that struck the museum was the failure to understand that there are powers that should not be disturbed, that some things are better left buried. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for Teso Dos Bichos. I like Teso Dos Bichos a lot on the rewatch. Um, I didn't remember it. I remembered a little bit about it, you know, with the cats and everything. But really, the cats aren't a major part of the episode. It's just kind of the last scene. So 
It was really good to watch the episode again and get a, a truer feel for what actually happened. Because I never think of this episode when I'm thinking of watching X-Files episodes. I never turn on Taste of Dos Bichos. But I'm glad I did the rewatch, um, especially for the music. Mark Snow does a good job with the music on this one. Gives a good South American feel to the episode with the... Um, the synthesized guitar music and um, a lot of different sound effects too so of course a great job with the music so that always keeps me entertained even if the episode isn't so great the music seems to make the episode better but i like the concept of it anyways it was kind of interesting with the um the jaguar spirit going on through the episode so i actually did like it a lot better than i thought compared to other monster of the weeks it's probably i would have given it close to a five if I hadn't rewatched it, but now rewatching it, it's a it's a good episode. I'd watch, I kind of wanted to watch it again when it was over, so I'd give it you know 7.5, something like that. It's not great, but it's a definitely a good one and it's rewatchable. So anything seven and above is rewatchable and good. So that's probably what I'd give it. Compared to all episodes of the X Files, it would probably be more like 6.5, uh, something like that. You know, still watchable, but the mythology episodes are all better than it. Compared to anything on TV, I'd probably give it a nine. For the sequelizer, you could definitely have a sequel to this, obviously. Uh, this is one of those episodes that leaves you thinking, you know, I want to watch, like I said earlier, you know, I'd like to see another episode. Or, or what else could happen with this episode? Because, you know, this the Amaru could be dug up again and, um, you know, similar things would happen. I suppose the, the sequel might not be great, but you could make it something good. It's definitely got a high potential for a sequel, though. And that's all I can think of for Teso Dos Pichos. It was a good episode. So let's head down now to the chem lab and see what Agent Angela has for us for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for Teso Dos Bichos. Are you Hello, agents. Yeah, not a whole lot of memorable Mulder and Scully moments in Teso dos Bichos, but some funny one-liners from them do show up in a few scenes, which is pretty much this episode's only saving grace. At Craig Horning's murder scene at the Boston Museum, Scully's the one having some back and forth with the detective, while Mulder walks around and looks around the scene without comment until the subject of an ancient curse comes up. After questioning Dr. Belak, Scully's the one that brings up the idea of Horning being devoured by a mythological jaguar spirit. Though the underlying meaning is along the lines of, you've got to be kidding me, Mulder. So you think Belak's innocent? That uh, the victim wasn't even murdered at all? That he was devoured by a mythological jaguar spirit? Go with it, Scully. There's another part of the second murder scene where Scully pulls the dead rat out from under the car hood, drops it in the evidence bag the cop's holding, and tells him to label it. The cop goes, with what? And Scully goes, partial rat body parts. And her expression says, obviously, not the sharpest tool in the shed, are we? Which strikes me as pretty funny. Though like a lot of this episode, it's probably more funny than it was intended to be. Then she catches up with Mulder, where, unbeknownst to him, the jaguar spirit has been watching him from up in a tree. 
That overhead shot would start giving me vertigo if it lasted any longer. Anyway, she gives him the rundown on what was found in the car engine compartments, and Mulder looks pretty grossed out at the idea of mutilated rats. Can't blame him. Scully then wipes a drop of what's unfortunately blood, and not rain, from Mulder's face. Blood from intestines hanging in the same tree. Now rats are not the only gross thing they run across in this case. Scully then autopsies the intestine and finds that whomever it belonged to shared Mulder's love of sunflower seeds. After they return to the museum in search of Mona and find the body of her dog instead, they start putting together some of the pieces because of rats showing up seemingly everywhere that has some connection to this case. The dog ate a cat. I think the rat ate the poison. Cat ate a rat. The dog ate the cat. More rats, Scully. Then Mulder puts a hand on Scully's shoulder and gently pulls her away from the dog corpse on the table, which is pretty much the only brief physical contact between them in this episode. It's a little odd because we don't always see him do this when there's a human body on the slab. In this same conversation, it's a little harder to catch because it's so brief, but Scully makes a Michael Jackson reference with the return of Ben. Anyway, Scully thinks Mulder's idea of a transposed human spirit in animal form is absurd. To the point of, have you been drinking Yahe? Though as usual, Mulder brushes right past that remark. And soon, down they go into the sewer tunnel, and Scully declines that ladies first invitation. Understandably so. The episode then moves into its final act of absurdity with the cat attack which they manage to escape as Mulder lifts Scully through a vent and they block the killer kitties from following them. In the end, the urn gets sent back to its rightful burial place, and Mulder adds the case log entry that some things are better left buried. Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Counterintelligence. Inside information. This is Agent Stone with Counterintelligence with X 3.18 Toso de Spichos. Original air date March 8, 1996. Written by John Scheiben, directed by Kim Manners. So, what are we talking about here? A possessed rat? The return of Ben? Teso dos Bichos, burial ground for small animals. Is this kind of like Pet Cemetery, the Stephen King novel? Or is it balls, as in you have big bichos? Or Teso dos Bichos, as in pussycats aren't scary? If the crew were rewarded t shirts after production that read Teso dos Bichos Survivor, do we get one after watching it too? Not to be harsh, I mean, these are some of the behind-the-scenes information from the cast and crew themselves. Anyway, an Amaru urn holding the remains of an Ecuadorian female shaman, 
a yellowish hallucinogenic liquid called Yahe or the Vine of the Soul, poisoned rats, deadly jaguar spirits, and a Dr. Luton named for Cat People director Val Luton, a movie you really should check out. Well, we've covered shamanism before, and I'll spare you the talk on poisoned rats or fictional jaguars. Now, Ecuador, along with many other South and Central American countries, has strong ties to the ancient alien theory, from artifacts and caves and figurines to hieroglyphs at all, but it's not specifically tied to this episode, and we'll skip that for now. So, let's talk hallucinogens. Ayahuasca, also commonly called yahe, is a psychedelic brew of various plant infusions prepared with the Banisteroposis copy vine. It is either mixed with the leaves of dimethylitryptamine or DMT, containing species of shrubs from the genus Psychotria, or with the leaves of the Justica pectoralis plant, which does not contain DMT. The brew, first described academically in the early 1950s by Harvard ethnobotanist Richard Evans Schultz, who found it employed for divinatory and healing purposes by the native peoples of Amazonian Peru, is known by a number of different names. It has been reported that some effects can be felt from consuming the cape vine alone, but that DMT-containing plants, such as psychotria, remain inactive when drunk as a brew without a source of monoamine oxidase inhibitor, such as B. cape. How indigenous peoples discovered the synergistic properties of the plants used in the ayahuasca brew remains unclear. Many indigenous Amazonian people say that they receive the instructions directly from plants and plant spirits. People who have consumed ayahuasca report having spiritual revelations regarding their purpose on earth, the true nature of the universe, as well as deep insight into how to be the best person they possibly can. This is viewed by many as a spiritual awakening in what is often described as our birth. In addition, it is often reported that individuals feel they gain access to higher spiritual dimensions and make contact with various spiritual or extra-dimensional beings who can act as guides or healers. Arthur Don Jose Campos claims that people may experience profound positive life changes subsequent to consuming ayahuasca, and Ralph Metzer states it is often viewed as one of the most effective tools of enlightenment. Vomiting can follow ayahuasca ingestion, this purging is considered by many shamans and experienced users of ayahuasca to be an essential part of the experience as it represents the release of negative energy and emotions built up over the course of one's life. Other such reports of this purging has come in the form of nausea, diarrhea, and hot cold flushes. The ingestion of ayahuasca can also cause significant but temporary emotional and psychological distress. Long-term negative effects are not known. For various reasons, some shamans and experienced users of ayahuasca advise consuming ayahuasca when not in the presence of one or several well-trained shamans. In some areas, there are purported brujos who masquerade as real shamans and who entice tourists to drink it in their presence. Real shamans believe one of these purposes is for this to steal one's energy and or power, which they believe every person has a stockpile of. 
It is believed to be very important for individuals seeking an ayahuasca experience to find a reputable shaman before hastily drinking with anyone who claims to be a shaman or who offers one ayahuasca. It is used largely as a religious sacrament. Users of ayahuasca in non-traditional contexts often align themselves with the philosophies and cosmologies associated with ayahuasca shamanism as practiced among indigenous peoples like the Yururina of Peruvian Amazonia. While non-native users know of the spiritual applications of ayahuasca, a less well-known traditional usage focuses on the medicinal properties of ayahuasca. When used for its medicinal purposes only, it affects the human consciousness for less than six hours, beginning half an hour after consumption and peaking after two. It also has cardiovascular effects, moderately increasing both heart rate and dysotrolic blood pressure. In some cases, individuals experience significant psychological stress during the experience. It is for this reason that extreme caution should be taken with those who may be at risk of heart disease. The psychedelic effects of ayahuasca include visual and auditory stimulation, the mixing of sensory modalities, and psychological introspection that may lead to great elation, fear, or illumination. Its purgative properties are important, known as la purga or the purge. The intense vomiting and occasional diarrhea it induces can clear the body of worms and other tropical parasites, and harmala alkaloids themselves have been shown to be anthelmintic. Thus, this action is twofold. A direct action on the parasites by these harmala alkaloids works to kill the parasites, and parasites are expelled through the increased intestinal motility that is caused by the alkaloids. Dietary taboos are often associated with the use of ayahuasca. In the rainforest, these tend towards the purification of oneself, abstaining from spicy and heavily seasoned foods, excess fat, salt, caffeine, acidic foods, and sex before, after, or during a ceremony. A diet low in foods containing trimamine has been recommended as the speculative interaction of trimamine and MAOIs could lead to hypertensive crisis. However, evidence indicates that harmala alkaloids act only on MAOA in a reversible way similar to moclobamide, an antidepressant that does not require dietary restrictions, Dietary restrictions are not used by the highly urban Brazilian ayahuasca church, Unal do Vegetal, suggesting the risk is much lower than perceived and possibly non-existent. In the 16th century, Christian missionaries from Spain and Portugal first encountered indigenous South Americans using ayahuasca. Their earliest reports described it as the work of the devil. In the 20th century, the active chemical constitute of B-Capi was named telepathine, but it was found to be identical to a chemical already isolated from Peganum harmala and was given the name harmaline. Beat writer William Burroughs read a paper by Richard Evans Schultz on the subject and sought out Yahe in the early 1950s while traveling through South America in the hopes that it could relieve or cure opiate addiction. Ayahuasca became more widely known when the McKenna brothers published their experience in the Amazon in True Hallucinations. In the late 20th century, the practice of ayahuasca drinking began spreading to Europe, North America, and elsewhere. The first ayahuasca churches, affiliated with the Brazilian Santo Dame, were established in the Netherlands, Brazil, 
and a number of modern religious movements based on the use of ayahuasca have emerged. The most famous of them being the Santo Dame and the Yunao do Vegetal, usually in an animistic contest that may be shamanistic or more often integrated with Christianity. In recent years, the tea has been popularized by Wade Davis, the author of The Serpent and the Rainbow, English novelist Martin Goodman in I Was Carlos Castaneda, Chilean novelist Isabel Allende, writer Kira Salek, author Jeremy Narby, and author Jay Griffiths, along with radio personality Robin Quivers. In 2008, psychology professor Benny Shannon published a controversial hypothesis that a brew anodulous to ayahuasca was heavily connected to early Judaism, and that the effects of this brew were responsible for some of the most significant events of Moses' life, including his vision of the burning bush. Internationally, DMT is a Schedule I drug under the Convention on Psychotropic Substances. The commentary on the Convention of Psychotropic Substances notes, however, that the plants containing it are not subject to international control. The cultivation of plants from which psychotropic substances are obtained is not controlled by the Vienna Convention. Neither the crown, fruit, or mescal button of the peyote cactus, nor the roots of the plant mimosa hostilis, nor psilocybe mushrooms themselves are included in Schedule 1, but only their respective principles, mescaline, DMT, and psilocin. For now, I'd say this case is closed, except for that part. So, the final word on Teso dos Bijos, some things are better left buried. Under the outdoor with the steamboats, ancient goblins and wild lows, come at the ground like making a sound, the smell of death is all around, and at night when the cold wind blows, no one cares, nobody What's going on out there? What's out there for Teso dos Bichos? First off, I figured this episode deserves some witty snark. And the first review site I thought to drop by for that was Unwelcome Commentary. And they don't disappoint. Lord, this episode was stupid. The story is uninspired, the mythology is generic as it comes, and numerous contrived depictions of crazed violence and shocking murder try to fill in the gaps of a ridiculous script. It moves along at a brisk pace, but yeesh, this one blew. The general plotting of Taste Little's B-Shows is straight out of a low-rent B-movie. A cursed urn, a museum of natural history, angry natives, and evil western folk dropping like flies. Mulder and Scully are left as mere ciphers, orbiting such a lame mystery, both looking bored out of their minds as bad guest stars quote pretensions while under the influence of mystical hallucinogens. There's something so silly about Mulder and Scully being attacked by a gaggle of killer, insert inappropriate word for cat here, and that's probably because it's played so straight. Stuck in the middle of such an experimental season for this show, Scenes of Scully's face being scratched and clawed by Kitty Cujo are crying out for some kind of irony. But no. It's played like a serious horror movie. 
From the night of the shaman in his mystical outfit standing on a hill, to the stone curator, and finally to those darn cats, this is hilarious for all the wrong reasons. Goofy as hell, and it ranks up there among the worst the show has ever produced. Rating, D-. Now, when they're done right, and when I'm in the mood for one, I happen to enjoy a low-rent B-horror movie. But sadly, I can think of about half a dozen of those that have way better storylines than Teso Dos Bichos. The fact that everyone plays it so seriously, in the midst of such a poorly conceived plot, does make this episode unintentionally funny, for all the wrong reasons. Other than some mildly entertaining one-liners from Mulder and Scully, I find this episode convoluted and largely forgettable. And this is coming from me. I love the series so much that I have a hard time saying anything negative about it most of the time. I'm just a glasses-half-full person by nature. But gotta agree with the D-minus grade on this one. The review snark continues over at Musings of an X-File. The sad truth remains that the X-Files hasn't bombed this badly since Season 1. Even 3, Season 2, Episode 7, is better, at least in terms of production value. By the end of the teaser, this episode is already a non-starter. Not one thing about the opening is successful. The guys at 1013 must have been sipping too much yahe if they thought this would work. From the second I see the mysterious shaman, or whoever he is, draped in red, ominously looking down from his lofty perch with his cane in hand, my eyes roll of their own accord. I have this theory I've mentioned before that The X-Files never really tackles ethnic myths and legends in a believable way. Fresh Bones more or less succeeds, but that's only because voodoo is already a familiar concept to the Western mind. The writer didn't try and tie voodoo to Haitian culture specifically so much as he created a regular mini-horror flick where explanations and motivations are rendered unnecessary. The thing is that it's hard to make an audience care about something they don't understand the significance of. And that's usually what happens in these X-Files ethnic episodes. Even Kip Manor's knack for directing horror couldn't save this one. Something about the Jaguar Cat special effect is hokey. Almost like something out of Season 1, except that Season 1 pulled off something similar much more successfully in Fallen Angel. After filming, Kim Manners had shirts made that read Tesoro's Bichel's Survivor and Second Salmon. The second quote being a reference to the number of rewrites the script was subjected to. Each rewrite was color-coded, and they made it to the color salmon. Twice. Says it all, doesn't it? I wonder exactly how many rewrites that was. Hey, one of those shirts sounds pretty cool. Note to self. Go look on eBay later, on the off chance there's one out there. This review does a great job of summing up the main problem with this kind of X-Files episode. Writers can't really make an audience care about something that that audience doesn't understand to begin with. Good thing the show creators learned from this as the series progressed. Want to read the rest of this rather entertaining snark on this X-Files episode? Head on over to our show notes page at xfilestruth.com I don't want to be buried in 
Character profiles. But these aren't humans, Profiles and character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile Kim Manners. He directed and produced 132 episodes of the X Files television series, working on the show from 1995 to 2002. He was the most prolific director on the show, having directed 52 episodes, just over one-fourth of the total episode count, and the longest serving from the second season to the end. He was known for his perfectionist and demanding approach to directing, as well as his colorful language when things were not satisfactory. The foul-mouthed character of Detective Manners in Season 3's Jose Chung's From Outer Space was modeled after him. Kim Manners was born January 13, 1951, and passed away January 25, 2009. He was an American television producer, director, and child actor best known for his work on The X-Files and Supernatural. Kim Manners was raised in a show business family. His father, Sam Manners, had production credits on such shows as The Wild Wild West and Route 66. Manners did some acting as a child, his first role was at the age of three in a Chevrolet commercial. He also watched and occasionally participated in his father's work as well as the work of William Bodine Sr., director of Ren 1010. It was Bodine who inspired Manners to become a director. Manners' brother Kelly has production and directorial credits on Angel, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Dollhouse, and his sister Tana works as a television director. Manners made his directorial debut in 1978, directing an episode of Charlie's Angels. Prior to this, he had worked as unit production manager on the show and as an assistant director on a handful of other projects. Other notable directorial credits to Manners' name include episodes of 21 Jump Street, Mission Impossible, Star Trek The Next Generation, Baywatch, K-9000, and The Commish. Manners left his directing job at Stephen J. Cannell Productions in 1993 to work on the television series The Adventures of Briscoe County, Jr. He directed seven of the series' 27 episodes, more than any other director for the show. He joked that he was the series' mascot director. He was happy with the work for the series and felt that it stretched him creatively. He said it really woke me up as a director, almost spiritually, and that directing for Briscoe was a large contributing factor to his later success as a regular director on The X-Files. Manners signed on to produce and direct The X-Files in the show's second season at the advice of Rob Bowman, who had worked on the show in its first season, and James Wong and Glenn Morgan, who were writers for the show and had previously worked with Manners on 21 Jump Street. He, along with his fellow producers on The X-Files, was nominated for four Emmy Awards for Outstanding Drama Series in 1995, 96, 97, and 98. Manners was referenced in the X-Files episode Jose Chung's From Outer Space with a foul-mouthed police detective named after him. Following the finale of The X-Files in 2002, he directed a number of small projects before signing on to direct and produce Supernatural in 2005. Kim died of lung cancer in Los Angeles on January 25, 2009 at the age of 58. 
On the March 12, 2009, an episode of Supernatural entitled Death Takes a Holiday aired. The end credits contain two photos of Kim Manners along with the caption, We dedicate the entire season to Kim Manners, and a final message stating, We miss you, Kim. The fifth episode of the second season of AMC's Breaking Bad, titled Breakage, which premiered on April 5, 2009, featured a dedication to Manners in the end credits. For The X-Files, Manners was credited as a producer for some of that series' greatest episodes, including the Emmy-winning Jose Chung's From Outer Space and Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, and directed such memorable entries as the creepy, funny Leonard Betts. Manners was a subtle artist working in a commercial medium that doesn't always prize such qualities. He was lucky to have found sympathetic creators to collaborate with, such as Kripke and X-Files' Chris Carter, and they were lucky to work with him. His episode list is lengthy to mention, but we give credit each and every episode to the writers and the directors of each, and Kim's name is mentioned more often than not. As a first for X-Files Truth, we wanted to pay tribute to one of the -the behind-the-scenes heroes of the show. And now for a few small excerpts from an interview with Kim in 1999. What's Chinga going to be like? I think it's pretty much classic Stephen King. It's about a demonic doll and it takes place in a little lobster town in Maine. It's got a Fargo-esque flavor to it. It's going to be a little bit gory and very funny at the same time. I think it's going to be a classic X-Files. It's pretty exciting. I've always wanted to be able to say one day that I directed some Stephen King, and here I'm finally getting the chance. I heard a rumor last season that he might come in and write one, and at the start of this year they confirmed that for me. I campaigned a little bit to direct it. I told Chris that I wanted to do it. Is it possible to be too spooky? Some people thought home went too far. You know what I would say to those people? You're not paying attention to the classic fear in life. I think the people who didn't like home didn't know what they were disturbed by. I think they were disturbed by every child's first fear in life, which is that there's something under the bed. And the fact that mom, Mrs. Peacock, was under the bed was that disturbed people most. I don't think home was distasteful at all. I thought it was a classic hour of horror, as classic as any Frankenstein or Dracula or werewolf story. Humbug was the first really funny episode. Weren't people nervous about making it? I was scared to death. After Die Hand, Die Verlets, they made me a producer. Humbug was my first episode as producer, and it was my second X-Files episode ever. So the pressure was on. And here they hand me a comedy. Not only a comedy, but one in which David Duchovny makes fun of himself. There we are with David posing on the steps of a trailer and somebody pointing to him and saying, or I could look like an idiot like him. I thought the script was brilliant, but it was really blazing new territory. I knew I had to go in and make it really good and interesting, and I think that together we came up with a new X-Files style. You have the paranormal episodes, you have the alien episodes, and now you have these little satires. Darren Morgan opened up another door for us, and it's been a very successful door. Vince Gilligan has kept the door open with unusual suspects, and I think Chris just did it with the postmodern Prometheus. The Stephen King episode right now has a lot of that flavor. That's exciting for the fans, and also for me as a director and the writers and all of us involved with the show. We're doing a television series that's opening every door you can open, and the audience appreciates that. 
You mentioned a possible move to L.A. Is that scary? If it goes to L.A., I have no objections because that's where I live. I've been up here for three years living in a hotel room with my wife and my dog. My daughters are in college, so I don't see them. It's a tough life, so I won't be brokenhearted if we move to L.A. But we're going to have to train a whole different set of people. The X-Files is not a television series. It's an experience. This is not just going to work and doing 9 to 5 and picking up your paycheck on Thursday. This requires total dedication. Everybody involved in this television series gives it their heart and soul. To replace that in Los Angeles is going to be a tall order. I've never seen a group of people as committed to something in all of my life. It's like we work at NASA or something. We're putting up a space shuttle every week. It's amazing. Checked your email? I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Angela. Hey everyone. First off, a little bit of exciting news. X-Files Truth now has a Twitter page. It was originally mine, but I figured, why not go ahead and make it official, since so much of what I put on there is X-Files related anyway. If you haven't found it already... The name is now X-Files Truth Podcast, and the handle is at X-Files underline truth. You can also find a link to it under the About section of our Facebook page, also called X-Files Truth Podcast. Hope to see you all there. Next up, we have two new iTunes reviews that are both five stars. For the first one, Coyote Bookman writes, Nice fan podcast. A fun listen if you're a fan of the show. I just started a few days ago and listen while at work. I'm up to number 14. Keep it up. Big Blue Kiowa writes, The legend lives on. You guys truly are reopening the X-Files. It's so cool getting to hear different opinions on the episodes, plus the real science and history from which the plot lines came, which for a geek like me is a dream come true. Add in some shippiness and character stuff and some extremely cool music, both original show soundtracks and new remixes and such, and you've got an amazing podcast. You guys are fantastic, and keep up the amazing work. Well, I may just go back and read that last review next time I'm not having a very good day. That's fantastic to hear. Thank you so much to both of you. We also have several new likes on our Facebook page, which has put us over 300 likes for the first time ever, so a big thank you and welcome to our new Facebook followers as well. We will be keeping this podcast rolling, all through 202 episodes and two movies. The four of us are committed to that, and we hope all of you listeners will be along with us for the whole ride. And who knows, maybe by the time we get closer to the end, there will be a third X-Files movie for us to review. Like Mulder says, don't give up. Want to get in touch with X-Files Truth? 
You can send us an email at xfilestruth at live.com. You can also tweet us at xfilestruth. Unless I'm asleep or away from my phone, I tend to respond relatively quickly on Twitter. You can also message us or leave us a comment on Facebook. And of course, you can also comment on our website itself. And finally, you can leave us a review at iTunes. If you'd like your X-Files fan story added to our next episode, you can send us an MP3 file. It doesn't have to be long, just about anything you'd like to say about how you became an X-File. Alternately, you can send us your fan story in an email and let us know if you want a certain agent to read it. Again, a big thank you to all of you who left us such wonderful feedback. To start wrapping it up for Taste of Bichos, La verdad está allí afuera. The truth is out there. Next time on X-Files Truth, when a young Chinese immigrant is found burned to death, agents Mulder and Scully are assigned to the investigation of a series of murders in San Francisco's Chinatown, where a potentially lucrative lottery can literally cost participants an arm and a leg. Dead rats, did you see what they were at all right? Dead cat in top hat, woo! That closes the file for Teso Dos Bichos. And it really did make my day to hear those two iTunes reviews that Angela just read. They were really great, so... You know, whenever you're having a bad day, you get a review like that. It does pick you up. And that also reminds me, we got a review for my Snow Tracks podcast, too. I might as well read it now because I haven't been able to put out episodes lately um, like I was going to try to. But May is the most busy month for me, so hopefully now I'll be able to put out some more Snow Tracks episodes and I'll get caught up with that. But I'll read the iTunes review for that here, and I'll probably put it on the Snow Tracks episode two coming up but anyways this one is five stars it says thank you by big blue kiawa 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 i guess <laughs> it says wow this is fantastic i'm a band geek and even bigger x files so this is a dream come true please 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 put the music from triangle up but this whole thing is awesome so thank you big blue kiawa kiawa <laughs> sorry but Thank you very much for that. That's from the uh, Snow Tracks podcast. And that's great news about the Twitter account. Uh, special thanks to Agent Angela for handling all that social media stuff. She's really doing wonders uh, with everything social media-wise. So thanks to her. And, of course, behind the scenes, Agent M giving us all the files and tons of information from Agent Stone. 
he digs up all kinds of good stuff for his segments too so these guys put in tons and tons of work so support them whenever you guys can on social media or however you want just you know even just go to the website say something there itunes mention them somehow those guys do such great work so this show's not getting done without all four of us here so it's just a it's a huge project takes four people to do it but thank you to all the listeners and all you guys who take the time to type in a few words wherever you like to do it we really do appreciate it okay that's everything for teso dos bichos we will see you guys in one month oh don't forget every episode comes out the first sunday of every month so i know months get staggered sometimes but it's always the first sunday of every month for a new podcast so we will see you next month for jose chung's from outer space an excellent episode and p.s congratulations to the new vice chairman of planning Did you like that one, puppies? I made this. 20th century box. From the Journal of Dr. Belock. I've seen the Amaru coming out of the jungle with the eyes of a scorpion, the claws of a jaguar. She leaps down from the trees. She tears at my flesh, then holds my head in her hands and eats out my eyes. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.